Well, faithful Christians sing psalms, which is helpful because we're in a series about the psalms. We sang some this morning. We, we sing them as a church. Faithful Christians sing psalms because these are the words that are given to the church and God's people from on high so that we can give expression to all of the things that we feel when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're joyful. And it covers the psalms cover a diversity of emotions and themes because it's meant to give you expression for all of life under the sun. And so if you find yourself wanting to express thanksgiving, well, you can go to Psalm 100, where the psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve him with gladness and come into his presence with singing. You can't read that and not get excited because that's the point. My translation has six exclamation marks in five verses. It's meant to help you to give thanksgiving or what if you're feeling overjoyed with God and overjoyed with his goodness? We'll go to Psalm 145, where he says, I extol you, my God and my King, and I bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Amen. What if you're in need of help? You can go to Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me. Or maybe even if you're in need of asking for forgiveness, if you need to repent of your sin, where do you go? If you need expression and voice, if you need help, you go with David to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Psalm 88, if your life's falling apart, you can all write that down because that's all of us. And then it begins to get, as you go through the Psalms, some of them are oddly specific, aren't they? Psalm 29, if, you're, if a storm's blowing in and you see a storm coming in from more and you're getting afraid, well, Psalm 29 is for you. Or Psalm 84, if you desire to be with God's people in church, but you can't right now, it's Saturday, the doors are closed. Or Psalm 76, if you need to praise God for the victories that he's given you, especially victories in war, that's where you go. And that's where we turn our focus and our attention today. If you'll turn in Psalm 76, a psalm that mature Christians have sung for its intended purpose throughout our history, a song of thanksgiving for victory. James Montgomery Boyce, a famous pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia in the 20th century, uh, he wrote of Psalm 76 some of the history behind how God's church has used it. He said the, the Catholic Spanish Armada was defeated in 1588 by Elizabeth I, and she had feasts to celebrate that thanksgiving over the Catholic church, and what song did they sing? Psalm 76. Or the French Huguenots sang it as they marched into the battle at Coligny, and the Covenanters sang it at Drumclaw in 1679, Boyce says, where they defeated the government troops led by the one known as Bloody Claverhouse. Over and over in history, Christians used the psalm rightly. He says, like many of the fighting psalms, this too has been a favorite of Christians during religious warfare. This is a warrior's psalm. And if you're reading this, on your own, you're reading this at home and you come across this, this is one that you might overlook really quickly and say, is there any relevance for a warrior psalm for me as a Christian in the 21st century experiencing relative peace, maybe the, the greatest peace that we've ever had uh, as, as a church? Is this psalm relevant? And several years ago in seminary, we were reading an article by Wolf 
who permanently changed my thinking about whether psalms are relevant. And he says, in effect, who are you to say whether something in scripture is relevant? In the article, he goes on to say, you know, what's, what's not immediately relevant to you may be immediately relevant to the person who's sitting next to you in the pew. And he goes on to say, you never know what each individual member in your congregation is going through. So what do we do as a body except open up the Bible and preach through every verse? Because not everybody in the church uh, tells you everything that they're going through, and not everybody in the church tells anybody about the things that they're going through. So we open up the Bible and we preach every verse and every chapter. And he says, you never know what each member of your congregation might have to go through in a lifetime. And so that's what we do as a church is we equip ourselves for all of life under the sun. We don't know where we're gonna be in the end of our life. And so we open up the Bible, we preach all of it, and we learn to live all of life under the sun. And so this is, this is how we equip ourselves. And so what's, what's relevant to a congregation? And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, what should I come and teach on? What should I preach on to, to this congregation? And the answer should be, well, I think you should open up the Bible and, and start there, right? You need the Bible. The Bible is relevant. There's no passage that's not relevant. And so if you're here, you're interpreting it faithfully, you're preparing people for all of life under the sun. And so for that reason, is Psalm 76 relevant to us? Absolutely. And so we might not be looking for victory over some specific physical battle as believers, but think for a minute, is it so far-fetched to think that we as a church by living out faithfully the, the truths that are contained in the Bible, is it so far-fetched to think that we might end up in some kind of political battle at some point? And I want you to think how many cases have gone to the Supreme Court, how many religious cases have gone to the Supreme Court that you've heard about in the news. These are battles. Or that Heritage Church and its members might end up in a cultural battle for preaching the whole counsel of God and standing for the whole counsel of God. We might end up in, in politics or cultural or political and here we see that, as well in this passage, there's always the spiritual warfare that's going on. And it's always relevant because we're always going to be praying for God to, to silence the enemy and to save those out of the world whom he will. And so we're granted the words of Psalm 76 to pray for this ongoing battle, for the preservation against the world, as it's going to talk about, and that our enemies would learn to honor and fear the true and living God. And so, yes... It's relevant, and I want to read the words with you now in Psalm 76, beginning in verse 1, where Asaph says, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you whence your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment and to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring the gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. And so we categorize this psalm as a warrior's psalm. It's a psalm for battle. And it's a Zion psalm. It's, a, it's battle really in this in a specific place. This is God's holy mountain and his holy hill. And interestingly enough that all of the divisions in the psalm, which you can even see marked by that little word, Selah, are about praise. 
This is a song of praise. It's like a symphony where the, the composer will begin a, a, a theme in the beginning of the song, and you'll see it come back through it, and he'll touch on it at the end and give you those, that warm, fuzzy feeling right at the end of the, the, the piece. And that's what he does in this psalm. It begins with praise. Praise is worked out from the beginning through the middle to the end. It's a song of praise to God. And verses 1 to 3 is, is almost a, a self-contained song within a song. It's a, a hymn of praise. In verses 4 to 9, it begins to catalog all the reasons why Israel and, and through the centuries, even now us, should praise God. In verse 10 to 12, there is a call for all of the earth, everybody that's in it, animate things, inanimate things, all things are to praise the God of heaven. So you have a hymn of praise, reasons for praise, and a call to praise. And we'll look at verses 1 to 3 now at this self-contained hymn, which shows that this song is a fighting song. It's a fight song. And you won't hear it in Norman. You'll hear a different fight song in Norman and a different one in Stillwater and a different one on Bison Hill. But the function of this fight song is a lot like modern fight songs. It's used by the church to prepare for battle. And it's used to celebrate victory among God's people. This is what the psalm does. And, and like a fight song, like any collegiate fight song, it's attached to a place. Look at verse 1. The, the, this place is mentioned four times in four different ways, very poetically, in the first two verses. He says, in Judah, God is known. That's the first one. Verse 1 again. In Israel, it says his name is great. And this is emphasizing that God's name has become famous in all of the promised land, among all of God's people, and on his holy hill. Verse 2, it calls it Salem. Salem is the oldest name for Jerusalem. You go all the way back to Genesis 14 with, with Melchizedek, he calls this place Salem. Even from the beginning, this has been his holy hill. Zion, verse 2, which is another name for God's place, God's kingdom, and specifically his fortress at Jerusalem. And the Israelites treat this psalm like a super fan would treat a sign at a football game. Or if you come into a stadium at a home game, you'll see people holding up signs that say things like, this is our house. Or if it's a domed stadium, it'll say, home sweet dome. Right? And, and coaches will use this same idea, motivating their team, saying, nobody is going to come to our city and stand in our building before our fans and push us around. And you can I feel it getting, right? Nobody comes here and messes with us. And that's what this psalm is doing. This is God's turf. This is God's city. And you're not going to find victory here. So God's people sing, the earth is the Lord's. This is my father's world. This is his promised land. And Jerusalem is his mountain. And Zion is his fortress. And no people can come here and push him around and push his people around. And this is proven in the imagery in verse 2 where the psalm says his abode has been established in Salem. And abode means dwelling place, but it's also used in the Hebrew of, it's the specific word used of a lion's den. He makes his abode, it's his den, it's his home. And so God makes his dwelling in Jerusalem like a lion, his den. Amos 1-2 picks up on this theme as well, saying, the Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. God is a lion, and this is his home. And so you see that Yahweh, even Jesus as Yahweh, was the lion of the tribe of Judah long before he was ever born of David. God is a lion. And Jesus is from the line of Judah. Verse 4 says similarly, playing on this theme, you are more majestic than the mountains full of prey. And the prey here, looking ahead, is 
is, is lending to this, this image and this idea where anything that's going to come and threaten God's people, there is one who is greater. There's a predator, and the prey can never get to God's people because they have a defender. You don't walk into a lion's den and start messing with the cubs. This is God. He says Jerusalem is his den, and he is the lion. And so if you want to come in and threaten his holy habitation, you have to answer first to him. And the same is true today. If you want to come against God's people threateningly, you have to answer first to our defender. You have to answer to our strong man. And you can't do it without answering to our defender and our protector and our king. And as you work your way through, there's a, a, a catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. As you get into the questions in the 20s, it begins to answer, you know, how is Jesus what offices does he do? And it's a, he's a prophet, and he's a priest, and he's a king. And you come to number 26, it says, well, how is Jesus a king? How does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer, it says, by subduing us to himself, by ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and all of our enemies. That's what the psalm is doing. Jesus is, is a judge in the psalm. He's a warrior in the psalm, but he's a king in this song. And so he restrains and conquers. Enemies and invaders have attempted to come against the city, but the passage teaches that the predator, the predator is more powerful than all of the prey that comes on his holy hill. He will defend them. He will subdue them. The earth is the Lord's. And Satan is not a predator and God's people the prey. We fall victim into thinking that sometimes. We're the prey and Satan's out to get us. Actually, in Scripture, it's the opposite uh, the Bible says, and Jesus says that this world belongs to him, that Satan is the strong man, and Jesus binds him and takes whatever he wants out of the world. Amen. Satan doesn't come to God's holy mountain and plunder what he wants. God comes to this world, and he takes what he wants. Jesus is the predator. God is the predator, and he takes what he wants, and what he wants is his church. So this is what this passage alludes to, and Asaph doesn't attach this psalm to any specific point in the history of the church. You can't go back and say with any certainty, this happened here, and I think that's on purpose, because the words of the psalm are supposed to become your words, where you can attach them to any victory that you need to, to come to, that any warfare that you engage in, this, these words can become your words, but if this was to be attached to a place, it almost certainly is to the Assyrians. And you see it when all of the, the prophets begin to say that God one day is going to break their bows and he's going to destroy their spears. And you read this passage and it says their bows are broken and their fiery arrows are quenched. And you see that in, in history, it's likely where Assyria was invading Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. And if you remember, God shows up as their defender and their king because they had no defender or no means to defend themselves. And God brought against the invaders the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord slayed 185,000 strong men, the strongest in the world, in a night. And whether this is that passage or that, that event in history or another one, you get to see how seriously God takes the defense of his people. And again, it's not meant to be attached to a certain place in history because this psalm is meant to be your psalm and its words meant to be your words. And I want to point out as well that sometimes we recognize that in our lives, God can be silent. And there are, there are often times where it doesn't feel like God is roaring from Zion. It feels like he's distant from us. And actually, we, we go an extra step when God is silent and we feel like because he is silent in our circumstances that he must somehow be absent from us. And that's really dangerous thinking. God's silence, it's been well said that 
you know, God brings trials and he brings tests on your life. And the teacher is always silent during the test. What teacher speaks during the test? And so we can't think that his silence means absence. And Psalms like this correct our dangerous thinking. Because if God is silent now in your life and in your circumstances, you can always go back to Psalms like Psalm 76 and see that there are times where he was so overwhelmingly, abundantly present and he shouted and he roared and he made himself known. He's made himself known to you at certain points in your life. And you can open up scripture and you can say there's certain points where he's made himself known to all the world. It says in verse one, he's made known, he's famous in Judah and in Jerusalem. And verses one to two are not words that lament the silence of God, are they? This is the opposite. This is fuel for your faith because it forever shows that God is not a God who remains silent. He's the God of revelation. He's the God who makes himself known. He's the God who is your defender and he's, he's shown him to be that. And at critical points in your life, you can remember God's answered your prayers and made himself known to you. And at critical points in the history of Israel, he's shown himself to be their defender and their warrior and their judge. And verses one to two is one of those times where it says God is known throughout all the land. How did did he make himself known? That's what the rest of the psalm is about, especially verse three. Read it with me. He broke, it says, the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. And so as the enemy marched to Jerusalem to wage war, they had to go against the provoked lion. And it says that they came against him with with arrows that were not only meant to kill the enemy, these are flaming arrows, they are meant to set the enemy's world on fire. These are are arrows that in the ancient world you you shoot flaming arrows so that number one, you can kill your enemy, but then so it would burn his house down. Or you shoot a flaming arrow so that if you miss your enemy, you can still burn his world to the ground. This is the same imagery that uh, Paul uses in Ephesians 6 when he says, speaking of your spiritual warfare and the things that you go through in this life, all the various trials that you go through in this life. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Again, these, these words are your words because Satan comes against you shooting his darts, setting your world on fire. And Ephesians says, what is your defense against the flaming darts of the evil one? It's your faith. And praise God, Psalm 76 is a psalm that exists to build your faith, to remind you that God is not silent, to remind you that God is there. And listen again to the hymn of praise written in verses one to three. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode, his den has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war. This is all fuel for praising God. And like Israel, we can appeal to God as our warrior and our defender. Our our battle is not the same, but the words are, and the trust is. And the arrows that your enemy fire, scripture reminds you, cannot penetrate through your shield of faith because God is your defender. Scripture builds your faith. And you see here that uh, their swords are blunted, verse three, meaning there is nothing that your enemy can do to hurt you. There's nothing your enemy can do to hurt you. So you can go and you can proclaim the truth of God's word anywhere, knowing that the defender will protect you. You can live out the Christian life knowing that there is a defender. The weapons of the enemy are blunted. Their shields are smashed, meaning they have no defense against you. And the the sword of God, their weapons, verse three again, the weapons of war are broken. And what's the only response to seeing the Lord of glory like this? This passage says it's praise. 
Praise is the only response. You see it in other Psalms. Psalm 47 has a very similar context. It says, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud shouts of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared. That's what our Psalm says. He's a great king over all the earth. He subdued the peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. What is the response to a God who subdues the wicked under his feet? It says right here in Psalm 47. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. Faithful Christians sing psalms. I can't even read these words. You can't read these words without your heart rate going up. There's only one response to God subduing his enemies, and it's praise. And it says, come to him and praise him with a psalm. And I say, how about Psalm 76? That's a good one. And I want to look and move on to verses 4 to 9 as he begins to move past the hymn. And now he says, here's all the reasons why you ought to praise God. Here's the fuel for your praise, the reasons for your praise. And verse four says he is to be praised for his glory. And here you have another exclamation of praise, an exuberant, uncontrollable outburst of emotion. We need more of this in the church, not less of this. He's worthy to be praised. And he says right here, glorious are you. You're more majestic than the mountains. And here's another image of God and, and gives us something of his nature. He's like a mountain, a symbol rich with meaning. It's, it's grandeur, it's stability, it's permanence. And he says, God is more glorious than the mountains. Amen. He goes on to say, what happened when the enemies of God confronted God on his mountain? When they approached the lion provoking him with their weapons drawn Verse five and continuing shows, this is what happens when you come against God and his people. Verse five, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. The word literally means the, the strong, the stout, the powerful men. We know elsewhere that this was the, the greatest power with the greatest, most powerful men alive at this time. That was who was coming against. It's enough to put fear in anybody's heart. But this passage teaches you can't steal from God. Remember, God is the one who binds the strong man and he steals as he wishes. Nobody comes and steals from God unless he allows it. And the enemy doesn't take what they want. It says, verse 5, he, he causes the wicked to fall into sleep. In the original, it's, it's literally a deep sleep. And this is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for death. He, he brings them to death. He frustrates them to the greatest extent. And it says that all the men of war, in verse 5, literally in the original, says they could not find their hands, meaning their power was taken away. And even if they did have power in their hands, their weapons have been brought to nothing. And so he, he frustrates them. There's, there's nothing that they can do to you. Verse six continues the thought. Horse and rider lay stunned. And he wants to emphasize and let you know why horse and rider lay stunned. It says because God rebuked them. It wasn't because they came against Israel and they saw that some of the guys were pretty buff or that you know, they had a really cool fortress. God rebuked them and they were brought to nothing. Verse 7 to 10, picture God not only as a defender, not only as a judge, but a warrior. And not only a warrior, but as we've already seen, he is a warrior king who rises from his throne and he moves to protect his people. And I want to point out, we don't only praise him because one day he's going to restrain his enemies. We don't praise him because he actively is restraining our enemies. We praise him because he has already done it. And this is who he is, and this is his nature. He is a God who subdues his enemy and protects the vulnerable people, which we just sang, are the church. 
And he will be our king, and he'll move on our behalf. And he is our king, and he moves on our behalf. And we know this is true because he already was. And he trampled his feet. He slayed the 185,000. He's moved on behalf of his church. And this is great comfort to us because if you go to the New Testament with the word of the Lord himself when he came upon his holy mountain and walked on it, Jesus Christ says in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not what? Prevail against it. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And so we don't have to be afraid of legal battles as a church because we have a defender. We don't have to be afraid of cultural battles as a church because we have a defender. We don't have to be afraid of political battles as a congregation because we have one who fights our battles for us. And we, are, we may not be God's elect nation where we can ascend to the holy hill and see his glory come and go and we can't touch it tangibly or see it, but he says God's people today are his temple. Amen. And he brought that temple down, God's glory left, so that he could come and indwell us, his church so what does God defend? He defends his people and his reputation for his glory. And so we have here the promise that we can always stand for the truth because we have a God who, who will defend us. Listen to verses seven to nine. Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment and to save all the humble of the earth. The question of verse 7 is rhetorical. Who can stand against the Lord when once his anger is roused? The answer is no one. When the king stands up from his throne to fight on behalf of his people, nobody will stand in the way of him. And you, Christian, when he's talking about moving to save the humble of the earth, Christian, he's talking about you. God stands up from his throne to receive you. He stands up from his throne to protect you. And you don't have to fear your enemies and you don't have to fear the nations. Verse seven says it's enough to fear God. That's enough. If you fear him, it will be well with you. Verse seven, he is to be feared. This is another emotional outburst when the king of glory stands up and he says, woe to the one for whom his anger is roused. And God's people in this passage are not pictured like they are often in scripture where we become backslidden and we become unfaithful and we fall away from the faith and God has words for us in, in moments like that. But here we're pictured as God's church, a faithful, humble people, and yet we're afflicted. And you see the history of Israel and you see the history of the church. When God's people are afflicted, what does God do? except move on behalf of his people. He moves for the good of his people. Verse 10, he utters, or verse eight, he utters judgment from the heavens. Verse eight, the earth fears and stands still. And we see in Psalm two, that entryway, part of the, the gateway into the Psalm says that the nations rage and the people plot in vain. And they're raging continually. The picture that the majestic Psalms give is that, that the, there's these foaming, oceans and they, they crash against the high hills. Just picture a hill out in Scotland where the, the, the foaming water is continually loud and crashing against it and the Lord of glory stands above it. It affects him not at all. And he looks over the cliff and he looks over his armaments and he says, who are you to stand against me? And he laughs in derision. And you stand on an ocean and you stand on one of these cliffs and, and it's loud. And when you're near it, I tried to do a wedding ceremony on a beach one time and nobody could hear me because the waters were roaring and the sea was foaming. And I want you to contrast that with the stillness of the silence and peace that comes when God moves in judgment. And it's the silence and the peace that comes when, when you stand outside. We, there's a calm before the storm. We know that. It's a, it's a cliche for a reason. When you step out in the moments before a tornado comes or 
it, you can't hear anything. You say, what's the difference between quiet and silence? Silence is when you're expecting to hear something and you don't. You step outside of your house and you expect to hear something and there's nothing and it's eerie, a quiet, perfect peace. It says here, this is what happens when God moves in his judgment. You hear nothing. I want to remind you of the, the famous words that you know in Psalm 46, where it says, be still and know that I am the Lord. You know that passage. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. It's a, a beautiful psalm. It's the one that Martin Luther said, you know what? I think I'll write a hymn about that. And we know it as a mighty fortress is our God. But I think what we don't know is that before be still and know, there's a few other verses. Verse eight says, come behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. Verse nine, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. Does that sound familiar? He burns the chariots with fire. These two, Psalm 76 and Psalm 46, are, are saying very similar things. And then comes verse 10 where he says, be still and know the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Remember again, Psalm 76, 9, God arose to establish judgment and to save all the humble of the earth. The earth feared and was still. He said, when they brought their judgment against the Lord, picture the Assyrian army once the angel moved. It's quiet. It's not only quiet, it's silent. And this is reason why you ought to put away your anxieties. What reason do you have for anxiety? What reason do you have to fear? This is what Psalm 46 means when it says, be still and know. God has delivered judgment. God is the God over his enemies. God is your defender and your king be still and know that he is the Lord. And finally, our passage calls for a response. Verses 10 to 12 is a call to praise. Read these verses with me. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. And here you have another overflow of emotion. It's over and over again. He says, surely, surely you will be praised. The wrath of man shall praise you. And what this means is that evil men are going to bring things against you in this world, and they mean it for evil, but God means it for good. It's this providence. He says, that the evil intentions of the evil men in this world coming against God's people will result in a display of his sovereignty and a display in his power, and it will all result in the praise and glory of God, even wicked men coming against God himself and coming against his people. That's why Spurgeon says that furious winds often drive vessels more swiftly into port. And he immediately after that says, the devil blows fire and melts the iron, and then the Lord fashions it for his own purposes. Let men and devils rage as they may. Amen because God will surely be praised in it. And verse 10 continues, it says, the remnant of wrath you're gonna put on like a belt. And that's kind of a, a, a difficult phrase to interpret, but what it likely means is that God doesn't allow the wrath of men to go any farther than what will result in his praise. So if there's anything that the world is gonna do that will not result in the praise and the glory of God, it will not come to pass. If it doesn't glorify God, then it doesn't happen. He restrains the wrath and he disallows it. And, and following this verse, he comes into the two great imperatives of this passage, the two great commandments, the two great responses that bring praise to God. And so what, what is to be our response to this passage and to what God has done to bring victory in this religious war? 
To praise and glorify God, yes. That's the theme of the whole psalm, but how? Two commands. Number one, he says, make vows and perform them. And number two, he says, bring gifts to the Lord. And who is the recipient of these commands? It's, it's first and foremost to those who do not yet know God. He says, you need to, to this God, to this king, you need to submit to him. You need to bow your knee to him. And if you are in this room and you do not know Jesus as your king and your Lord, these verses are especially for you. Submit your life to him. Give your life to him. Bring your gifts to him. And your gifts means, above all things, your soul and your life and your time and your treasure and your talents. This, this is the command for you. But he begins to say, make your vows to him. And if this is meant for the unbelievers, I say, how much more the church? If the unbelievers are to bring tribute and to make vows and fulfill them, how much more us as God's people? He says, make promises to God and keep them. And I know, and I know that you know, a host of people who are in this world who confess that Jesus is their Lord, but it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing for him actually to be your Lord. It's not enough to declare Jesus to be your Lord. You must make him the Lord of your life. And it's not enough to, to know that you need to make church a priority or to say that you're going to make church a priority. Make church a priority. Come here with God's people. Make your vows and perform them. Orient your life around the God of heaven and earth. Become serious about the worship of the king of glory. Get serious about serving your local church body and loving well the people of God and raising up the next generation to love this gospel and to proclaim this gospel and to do it faithfully. And he goes on and he says, don't just make vows and fulfill them, but also bring him tribute. And the word tribute means it's a gift. It's, it's a donation. It's a present. And tribute in war especially is, is a sign of submission, is it not? And it's a sign of allegiance. This is something that the inferior does to the superior. It's a sign of respect. And the Magi, when Jesus was born, what did they bring him except tribute? And where do you read in scripture where it says they were told that they had to bring tribute to the king of glory? They didn't have to bring tribute to him. They, they saw the kingly star in the sky and they recognized what was happening and they said, we will bring costly gifts to him. They got up and they, they went a, a far distance and brought him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I don't know if you've got on Amazon recently and tried to buy gold or frankincense or myrrh. These are still costly gifts, are they not? This stuff's expensive. They brought him the good stuff. And the same is true in 2 Chronicles 9, one of my favorite passages where the queen of Sheba comes into Jerusalem and she sees the temple and she sees Solomon and she sees the glory of the Lord on this hill of Psalm 76 put on display and she just is overwhelmed with emotion and she blesses God's people first. The first thing she does once her eyes are open, she says, happy or fortunate are you that you get to be, that he gets to be your God and Solomon gets to be here who has made this whole city a, a place where God is praised. Fortunate are all the people who get to be here. But then she says, but blessed is God in heaven. And she pronounces blessing on Yahweh. And then the, the first thing she does in that moment, the first thing that she can do with her time is she brings costly gifts to God's holy hill. And it's recorded for us. She declares him blessed. And then she brings 120 talents of gold. That's, that's a lot of money in gold. And then it says she brings spices to him, huge amounts of spices and spices such that there were no spices like this anywhere in the world. She brought the best of the best. It's like Heritage Church with our coffee. There is no coffee in Shawnee that is like the coffee that we bring for God's people. We bring the best as tribute to the Lord. He goes on and says, precious stones she brings to God. 
Costly gifts on behalf of her whole nation, and it says given willingly, given gladly. That ought to be the posture of your heart, and I bring the same question to you. What gifts and tribute do you bring to the Lord of glory? What costly gifts do you bring? And I offer you three, three things that Yahweh is worthy of. He's worthy of your time. He's worthy of your treasure, and he's worthy of your talent. He's gifted you with that talent, and he wants you to use it for his glory. So make sure by these three things, all creation is called to glorify God in heaven, and you have these things, and he's worthy of these things. So fulfill the promises that you make to the Lord of glory. Don't just say, I'm going to read my Bible more, but read your Bible. Don't just say, I'm going to get my family involved in church, or I'm going to get them involved with a subset of God's people, but, but do it. Bring them to church. Bring them to life group. And don't just say that you're going to serve more. Come and serve the people of God. And so glorify him and so express your praise to him. Jesus Christ himself, Yahweh himself, says pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will bring laborers into his kingdom because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We need people in this church who will make vows and fulfill them. We need people that will bring their treasures so that we can have money to care for the vulnerable and to bring the gospel to the next generation. We need this. Submit to him your life. And so this psalm will become your psalm. And its words will become your words. And you might not have known that you needed a warrior psalm to sing, but now you have one. And uh, I hope that you'll see as we look at the, the final verses here, that there, there's a hope in this psalm. Or really, as we reflect on the whole psalm, that there's a hope here. A hope that one day God will disarm his enemies. The commentator Tate writes of our world, ours is not a utopian world, devoid of the power of chaos and free of the demonic and basically loving. On the contrary, it's a context where brothers and sisters deny the keeping of their brothers and sisters, where thieves break through and steal, where friends either do not comfort or else betray other friends, where the entrenched social, religious, and economic structures of society systematically exploit, oppress, and suppress the poor of the earth. The world groans in its suffering, and it cries out for judgment. Like those dying from thirst in a desert place, the little people of the world long for the Lion of Judah to come forth from his lair and to roar out in a mighty rebuke until shields, swords, horses, and chariots lay stunned in silence, end quote. We long for that. That's our hope, that God won't just make it quiet on Jerusalem, but this whole habitation, this whole world will be quiet. And this passage teaches us that we can purge the fear from our hearts because we have the risen Lord as our defender and our king, but there's more hope. God will not only defend the wicked and he will not only disarm the wicked, but he will also disarm his church because we will have no need of sword or shield in the coming kingdom. And I leave you with the words of Isaiah 2, or Isaiah says, he will judge between the nations and will decide disputes for many peoples, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall no longer lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we, we lift you up as it's so overwhelmingly evident in, in history and in these particular verses that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the king and you are our king. And so God, teach us to teach our hearts to match our profession. Help us to make the vow and, and perform them that we give our life to you. 
Teach us what it means to give of our time and our treasure and our talents and to find balance in those things. But God, may we praise you with our gifts, may we praise you with our life, and may we praise you with our soul. And God, we look forward to the day when all of the earth will be still and know that you are the Lord. And so God, we exalt you now with words of praise from our lips. God, we offer this to you in our praise for your glory. Amen.